Hey, uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of Habakkuk this morning. Um, we uh, will move through verses 1 through 16, um, and we're drawing to a close uh, the book of Habakkuk. We'll finish up in some part next week as far as the formal book, and then two weeks later we'll look at how Paul uses that key verse that we've talked about from Habakkuk 2, uh, how the righteous shall live by faith in the book of Galatians. So that'll be in a few weeks from now. Um, but as we're bringing it to a close, if this is your first time being with us in the book of Habakkuk, you're in for a treat because this is actually where it gets good. Um, and then the questions begin to begin to dissipate and Habakkuk begins to fall silent as God has commanded in 2.20 uh, and he is beginning to worship. Uh, as a result. And so uh, as we look at this this morning, we need to know that this is a, this is a prayer. This is a prayer that would have been sung in the congregation. Uh, there are several musical terms that are part of this that we have no earthly idea what they mean. Uh, I'm sure there's been plenty of ink spilled trying to figure it out, but we have not come to a firm conclusion, which is why we do not use the term in worship, Shigianoff, or even Silah, even though I know there's a CCM band of that name. And so, uh, so those are terms that we just really don't know, but it does tell us that this would have been something that would have sung in worship. So let's pay special attention to God's word this morning as we read, because this would have been something used in worship to encourage the people of God during a very difficult time. I know that many of you are going through a variety of things that are at varying degrees of difficulty. So my prayer for all of us this morning is that Habakkuk's words would minister to the parts of our souls that are maybe wounded and weak and confused and maybe questioning this morning. And so the main thing that I want us to get from our time together, the key truth is this. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we should prayerfully seek God's glory to be made known to remember God's faithful redemptive actions and to be humbled and caused to tremble at his response. Let me read that again. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we should prayerfully seek God's glory to be made known, to remember God's faithful redemptive actions and to be humbled and caused to tremble at his response. And if we're honest, that is not a normal response for any of us in the midst of suffering or difficult circumstances, is it? I mean, let's be fair, there may be a couple of super saints in our midst this morning, but don't reveal yourselves because um, it may go bad for you. Um, but, but when we hear the hard words of the Lord, or we know that judgment is coming, or we know that there's a, a difficult set of circumstances in our midst, we don't immediately concern ourselves with the glory of God, do we? What do we concern ourselves with? Self-preservation. How's this going to affect me? How is this going to affect my family? Maybe, maybe we have a little bit more than just pure selfishness involved, but oftentimes we're not concerned at all about how the glory of God will be affected by our response or the circumstances, which we will discover from both Habakkuk and a psalm we'll read a little bit later. That's an unbiblical response. We should be most concerned for the glory of God because when God is glorified, what happens for us? We are, that's, that is where we are the safest. That's where our greatest joy will be found. That is where we will be provided for. Though it seems antithetical to everything that we think and we know. This is an important thing for those of you who are maybe under the age of 30 to really listen to. 
because there's a number of things, transitions coming up in your life, things that you will struggle with, things that you will deal with, things that will come your way, and you need to have a, a means by which to engage it that is healthy, that will help you to thrive and, and, and be able to um, worship the Lord your God and, and flourish long into the future. And so, um, we have to first of all confess that oftentimes when we hear the hard words of the Lord our God, we don't respond biblically. And so in that confession, that doesn't mean we're stuck there, now does it? Because we have in, in God's word to teach us and we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. And there's many of you who could testify, who could testify again and again and again at the deliverance and the goodness of our God in which he was glorified in and through your life in the midst of a very difficult circumstance, and, he, and that's unique to that circumstance, isn't it? No other circumstance glorifies God, unfortunately, like suffering that is come out of, like darkness that bleeds into night, I mean into light, not night, that's actually the opposite, um, uh, where these, these things are, are fertile ground for the Lord to prove again and again his covenant faithfulness, his deep love for his people. You know, uh, We've been talking a pretty good bit in some of the smaller groups that I'm involved with uh, about just, just how much we take for granted and, and how we quickly forget our theology, right? I mean, where are we? Well, we're between the now and the not yet. Well, what is the now? Well, the now is life in a fallen world, not life in a neutral world. Not life in a world where you can be anything you want to be. I've tried to fly, and I just can't. Uh, I've tried to dunk a basketball, and I just can't. Especially now that I'm 250, it's much, much harder to get it all off the ground and hope that it doesn't come down poorly. Um, there's just things that, between the now and the not yet, we do not have the ability to do. And we struggle, don't we? But somehow, some way, we kind of, each day when we wake up, we have forgotten that truth. And we wake up thinking that we're in the promised land, that our car should start every time we turn, that, that everything should work just as we had thought it did the day before, that our bodies should be working just fine, that everything should be fine, that our children should behave, that our job should produce, that everything ought to be okay. And it's just not true, is it? Now, I'm not being caustic because here's the, the good news. There is common grace. And the Lord is at work between the now and the not yet such that it is not all negative, is it? This is, this is not all just destruction. No, that would be caustic. That would be melancholy. That would be foolish for us to think that way. But we can't forget where we are. And we've got to remember what is the not yet that we are between the now and that. Well, the not yet is when the Lord will return and he'll make all things new. But in the making of all things new, what must come first? What must be purged from creation? What must be removed in total? Well, any barrier to him that would keep us from being able to take in the fullness of his glory and appreciate him for all that he is, and that we could at long last behold Christ as he was intended to be, and we could be as we were intended to be. So all barriers must be removed, and that means judgment. That means that judgment must fall. So think about Habakkuk as he, if we go back, remember what was his initial concern? He said, Judah has descended into their fallenness. They have forgotten who they are. They do not glorify you, Lord. 
They slaughter each other. They steal from each other. They disregard the poor and the widow and the orphan. And he said, something is wrong between this now and that not yet. And God said, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to bring judgment. And he says that he's going to fashion a particular instrument for his judgment, the Chaldeans. And remember, Habakkuk says, of all that I know about you, this doesn't seem to make sense, but you're God and I am not. And I'm going to step back and listen for you to answer me. And I know that you will because you've been faithful so many times in the past. And God does answer him, and he answers him very, very clearly. He says, write this on a tablet so that a man or woman or child who is running could read it and understand. And he says, I'm going to punish those who are not of faith. What is the antithesis to faith? Arrogance. Not doubt, not struggle, not imperfection. That's really important for us to remember theologically. The antithesis to faith is not your failure. It's not your imperfection. It's, it's, it's not your inability to, to do certain things. It's not your failure at anything. It is your arrogance in thinking that you don't need a savior. That you could in your actions be righteous of your own accord or that you don't need anyone to judge you at all. Even Tupac understood that God could judge him. I know that's kind of a lost reference on most of you, but that's okay. (laughs) And probably good that it is lost on most of you. But here's the deal. It's arrogance. And so often I think that's the thing that we miss. What do we as Christians so often get charged with from both within and without? Are we charged with being faithful and righteous? Or are we charged with being arrogant? Sometimes the charge is true. Sometimes it's not. But too often I think it's true. Too often we lack humility. We we forget who we really are. We treat each other with no grace or love or mercy at all as if we were somehow in control and there's something we could protect with our words and actions. So God says, I'm going to deal with those people who are arrogant. And remember at the end of chapter 2, he gives us this incredible unpacked description of the arrogant. And he makes it very clear that all that they build in their arrogance will be destroyed. And it'll be destroyed because it doesn't fit with his glory. It doesn't, it doesn't extend his, the knowledge of his glory throughout the whole kingdom. Remember, we made a reference to uh, 1 Corinthians 3, where God very clearly says through Paul that everything that is made with haywood and stubble will burn up by fire. So build something that lasts. Build something in humility. Build something that glorifies the Lord our God so that between the now and the not yet, more could come to know and see exactly who he is and who they are so that they could be saved. Amen? You remember God ended all of that and he said, I am in my holy temple. Let all the earth fall silent before me. Too often we've admitted We have too much to say, don't we? We're too quick to post. We're too quick to jump into a fray that we don't know all of the circumstances on. We're too quick to weigh in where no one has asked for our opinion. We're we're, we're too quick to speak on God's behalf before he has spoken to us, before we have been moved to tremble before his word. And I am guilty, 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 guilty as sin. 
And so Habakkuk seems to not exactly obey God by speaking, but this is exactly what God wants. He wants for our words that are ignorant to fall silent, but instead those that would glorify him to rise up as a wonderful aroma before the very throne, a prayer. And we don't know the exact length of time between when God finishes speaking and and Habakkuk utters this prayer. My suspicion is that Habakkuk fell silent for some period of time and did not speak again until he had something worth saying. May we do the same. O. Palmer Robertson, in his book, The Christ of the Prophets, says this about Habakkuk. He says, the book of Habakkuk is unique in that the reader is privileged to observe the prophet himself grow out of an attitude of rigorous complaint against God into a spirit of total submission. This book, Habakkuk, is incredibly instructive to us as as believers who ought to have questions about this world, who ought to have hard questions about his church, who ought to have hard questions about our role in any and all of this. This book is incredibly instructive because if, if, if you're anything like me and you start asking questions, you realize there's some pretty interesting answers that lie out there. And there are some conundrums, and there are some paradoxes, and there are some riddles, and there are some things that just don't seem to even make sense. That would shake our faith to the core if our faith were ultimately about us and not about God. And so Habakkuk teaches us, ask hard questions. The Lord appreciates them. But also listen. Be still and know that he is God. Stand your watch to listen for what he has to say, and then when he gives it to you, share it with your neighbors. And we also see that there is a time in which the questions must cease and worship must begin. And this is that time. So if you would, hear God's word this morning, beginning in verse 1. I'll read all 16 verses, and then we'll go back and unpack. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, as the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. 
You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now, the first part of this, uh, Habakkuk makes very clear that he has heard what the Lord is saying. Now, what can we learn from that? As James would say, be slow to speak and quick to listen. So often, I don't think we give ourselves any room to listen, do we? We have so much that, that clamors for our attention so much that, that rattles around inside of our heads that we do a, a very, very poor job of taking time to truly meditate upon God's Word and to truly listen. Lord, what are you saying to me today? I'm not asking for a show of hands here. This is a rhetorical question. But how many of you could honestly say, I, I really prepared to hear this morning. I did a lot of hearing, listening type exercises to make sure I was like, Okay, yeah, yeah, oh, everything's working. Did you, how many of you would say that you did that? Well, not many of us would, would, could say that. We, we do very little in terms of preparation to hear from the Lord. And here Habakkuk is saying, Lord, I, I have been obedient to what I said I would do. I did stand my watch, and I have clearly heard what it is that you have to say to me. I have clearly heard what it is that you're going to do. And notice how he responds. Notice what is his greatest concern, beginning in verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Now, in the Hebrew there, that word fear is more of reverence and awe. He is saying, I am in awe of what it is that you're going to do. I am in awe of who you are, O Lord. And this he asked, this is his petition. Listen, this is his petition. In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive what? Well, the knowledge of the glory of God. In the midst of the years, Lord, do not let your glory be swept away by the suffering that is coming. In the midst of the years, do not let the, your glory be in any way, shape, or form be tainted by the response of the people. Let it be revived. May it be known. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then he says this. In the midst of your wrath, remember mercy. Remember your covenant promises. Remember your covenant people in the midst of judgment. His greatest concern is that God's glory would be preserved and that there would be a, rem a remnant who could worship and celebrate that for all days. Now, in the midst of the things that you have suffered, has that been your greatest concern? Now, confessionally, I, I've, I've never done this. Maybe that disqualifies me as pastor. Or maybe it actually qualifies me to know that that is a problem. 
this is something that we, we should learn. This is something in, in which we should mature. This is an equipping that I think would change us. That our first concern would be when something goes wrong, all right, Lord, before I respond, I want to listen to you for a bit, and then I want to make sure that I've got a clear understanding of what's going to glorify you. I do not want my anger to rise up and be first response. How many of you, again, rhetorical question, no show of hands, how many of you struggle with your first response to anything that happens to you is anger and discontent and, and, and your mouth all of a sudden gets foul and you sound like a sailor? And you struggle because you think that it ought to be different than it is. And instead of you turning to the Lord your God, you turn inward. It's got to change for us. It ought to change for us that we are trained to instead turn to the glory of the Lord and say, all right, before I do anything, God, what would bring you the most glory? Before I act, before I speak, before I engage, I want to ask that your glory would be revived, that it would be made known, and that you would be called glorious. How do you think that would change the vast majority of our conflicts and struggles? Just that alone? I think it would radically transform it. I think it would radically transform how we engage one another. Because if we were more concerned with God's glory, any slight that comes our way will be run through that filter or any perceived slight. And for us to care about God's glory would actually be better for us than for us to fight for what little we think we have and that we really don't have. And so Habakkuk is teaching us within the context of this prayer what ought to be first and foremost. What's interesting is if you think about the Lord's Prayer, it starts with give us this day our daily bread, right? You know how it starts, you Bible scholars who know the Lord's Prayer? It starts with give us some stuff, right? Now what does it start with? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's interesting is that um, the disciples of all the things that they saw Jesus do and that he could have taught them to do, the most important thing and the first thing that they asked him for was, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. Why do you think they did that? What did you think, what do you think they may have seen as the Lord had gone up and prayed all night and then, the, and then, and then God answered his prayers? And the power that they saw within the, the, the words that Jesus spoke to the Father in submission. See, even Jesus is teaching us something that Habakkuk is also teaching us is that first and foremost, in prayer, in our lives, what, most be, what must be most concerning to us is God's glory. In our jobs, in our families, in our struggles, in every circumstance. And then Habakkuk goes on to, to speak of God coming from the wilderness. This is something else that he's going to teach us, actually, as we get into the next section. He's going to teach us that in addition to declaring God's glory is to remember where he has been glorious. We've talked about this quite a bit here, is that remembrance ought to be a part of our devotions. It ought to be a part of our Lord's Day worship, Sabbath practice. It ought to be part of who we are. And so often I think that we, we fail at being able to remember well, and I don't think that we go far enough back. 
right? How many of you would, in, in terms of remembrance, you go all the way back to people being delivered from Egypt? You recognize that if they don't get delivered from Egypt, you're not here. You have no hope. It goes all the way back. That's what I love about Josh choosing to do the song Future Past by John Mark McMillan and just that, that idea that God is both our future and our past and our present. That is something that we should do a better job of remembering. And so Habakkuk begins by saying, it is the Lord who rose from the wilderness, which is Timon, which is in Edom, and Mount Paran. It is the Lord who comes to deliver his people, not the people who go to the Lord to be delivered. And so D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about this passage. He says, there is no request whatsoever that God should hold his hand or spare Israel. We find rather a recognition that what God says he will do is perfectly right, that God is absolutely just, and that the punishment which is going to come upon Israel is well-deserved, an attitude of complete submission to the will of God. There is no attempt to defend Israel or himself, but frank admission of sin and recognition of the righteousness, holiness, and justice of God. How many of you would have expected Habakkuk to say, Lord, please preserve us. Don't let this fall on us. Because you've got to remember, Habakkuk doesn't get an out. He will be carried into exile along with Daniel and many others. Right? It's not going to fall on just those people. No, Habakkuk is going to have to sit and wait to suffer himself on behalf of the sins of the people. So wouldn't you have expected him to say, Lord, maybe I can get away. Maybe I can escape. Deliver me at least, Lord, because I'm, I'm one of the few that care. That's not what he does. He says, no, Lord, more than anything, may your glory, may your glory be made known. May you be declared glorious and wonderful and beautiful. As for me, I will sit and wait and tremble. So for us, we've got to ask ourselves the question, do we care about God's glory? And if we don't, why? Why is it not more of an issue for us? Why is it not more informative to how we live, how we interact with one another, how we speak to one another, how we engage, how we care, how we love? It would I'm telling you, it would transform everything. If God's glory was of, of greater importance to us, and how we dealt with one another would be radically transformed. Let's look at verses 4 through 13. And here what Habakkuk does is he begins to unpack basically how God delivered the people from Egypt. And I'm not going to go through and necessarily unpack how each of these things does that. I think it's actually fairly clear. But in each place he shows that God delivered Egypt by the ten plagues, destroying the Egyptian gods, and ultimately destroying Pharaoh, who thought himself the greatest god of all, the most arrogant man maybe who's ever lived. And so he does that, and he delivers them into the wilderness, and there's the Red Sea crossing, which is alluded to here, and then they find themselves on the edge of the Jordan, which also serves God's purpose and allows them to cross. And then they are able to defeat those who tried to oppose God's people, which included the Cushites or, or those of Cushan and the Midianites. 
So here Habakkuk again and again is saying, God, I see where you have again and again and again delivered your people from exile. You are the God who is good. And look at where he concludes in this section, verse 13. Let's hear that again. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Now, what is he referring to there? Well, Genesis 3.15 teaches us what? What does Genesis 3.15 teach us? That we have hope. That, that the one who is going to rage against God and all of his children, who is going to pour out his wrath, Revelation 12, upon this planet like nothing we've ever seen, that will, that will rule the principalities in darkness, that will so orchestrate things, even though he is not sovereign, even though he is not omnipotent, even though he is not all-powerful, he will orchestrate things so that they will work for him for years and years and years and years. There are situations that are going on in this country at current that are over 200 years old. They were in the making some 200 years ago when someone made a decision for the glory of man over the glory of God. There are situations all throughout our world which are being affected, uh, that were, are intensely affected by decisions that were made hundreds of years ago where somebody decided for the glory of man over the glory of God. There is nothing that is happening now that didn't just come up. It's been slouching toward Bethlehem for centuries. And we need to have a rich appreciation of just how powerful the principalities in darkness are but an even stronger appreciation of the God who rises to defeat them. So God in Christ rose, and he came and he suffered and he died, breaking the back of death, breaking the bonds of sin, taking away the wrath of God, do all of those things so that we could have life and life more abundant. Now, if that's true, how in the world can his glory not be our greatest concern? If that's true and the clock has stopped for us and eternity has begun for the sons and daughters of God, then how is it that his glory cannot be our greatest concern as it is for Habakkuk here, who understands that though the Chaldeans are coming, even for him, what they cannot take for him is his sonship. So he declares that it is the Lord who rises to deliver, and he's remembering the promises, the covenant promise from Genesis 3.15. And we would do well to remember the same often. I think that, given my own experience, that we dangerously can become spoiled children. Right? That we come to expect that God would, that we are due certain things that we are not due in a fallen world. We are due certain things that would glorify us to our own destruction. That's a bad idea. And so we, we have to remember the gospel. We have to go back and remember again and again and again that you did not save you. You did not choose God for one second. You wouldn't if given a thousand chances over. You will choose the God created in your own image. You will choose the God who is small and inglorious so that you could be glorified. 
but you will not choose the God of the universe who created all things and whose glory is preeminent. Your arrogance will not allow you, nor will mine. And so praise God that he has slain even the arrogance that lurks deep within our hearts and souls and minds. Praise God that it is he who rose to make us righteous so that we could live by faith and live life more abundant. Listen to what Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says in the book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin. <laughs> As I said last week, he um, is a professor up in Grand Rapids at Calvin College. He says, to speak of sin by itself to speak of sin apart from the realities of creation and grace is to forget the resolve of God. God wants shalom and will pay any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Did you hear that? Cornelius Plantinga just basically said, that the Lord our God was willing to suffer any measure of indignity and ingloriousness to redeem us, his people, so that he could be truly glorified in his creation. That sin, yes, it is persistent, but it is not near as persistent as the redemption and, and reconciliation of the Lord our God. How many of you have felt that? Have you felt that God has pursued you long after you did not want to be pursued? Who has gone before you and prepared a way that you didn't even know was possible and would never have looked for, except that his spirit showed you that way? And maybe some of you are in a circumstance at this time where you don't see those things. That you don't necessarily see the way that you don't necessarily feel the Lord at work. My prayer for you is that you would cling to the crucified because I can testify again and again and again of the Lord's goodness and how he has delivered one such as I, a radical anti-theist who could see nothing good on this planet at all. And so I would hope that we would all be able to taste of the persistence of our great pursuing, redeeming, reconciling God, who Habakkuk testifies to in the midst of a very difficult circumstances. So I think it would be great for you at some point this day, and don't let another day go, to take time to testify to how the Lord has been unique in your family, in pursuing you and your family, and in displaying his glory so often, we just don't take the time to do any good remembering. And it is a wonderful practice, I think, that could begin to transform our hearts. And the Sabbath of the Lord's Day, there's no better day on which to do it, is there? No better way for our hearts to be encouraged. No better way for us to be able to go forward because of how we have seen how far the Lord has brought us from the past. And then he closes out with these words. He speaks of God's coming, and he can hear God coming in a sense. And he, he knows that the Lord is going to pierce through the warriors with their own arrows. He's going to turn their own wiles against them. He's going to destroy them with their own sin. And he says, in verse 16, he says, I hear, and my body trembles. 
My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And so here Habakkuk is at long last saying, I know what's coming. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a sadomasochist. Habakkuk's not a sadomasochist. He's not a fool. He knows that what's coming is bad. He knows that it's going to be so destructive to those he loves. He knows that if they had just listened, they wouldn't have had to taste of the sting of this judgment. He knows that if, he, if maybe he had just said one more thing, if maybe he had just prophesied for one more hour, that maybe, maybe it could be different. But now he must take at long last what's coming. And he must resign himself, not resignation in the sense of defeat, but he must resign himself to the reality that the Lord is the only one who can do what he could not do if he had been given a thousand years to do it. And so he trembles at last at the very word of God. Jeremiah Burroughs does an incredible job of kind of highlighting this, and it's something that I think that we need to ask ourselves. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself trembling at the word of God? Do, do you really take seriously that he is God? Do you take seriously that his word is meaningful and that it changes things? Do you have an expectancy which would cause you to tremble, not just at the negative things, but at the good things that he promises to his people? Do you ever tremble in expectancy knowing that he is going to bless us, his children? Do you, do you expect to get anything out of his worship of any kind ever at all? Jeremiah Burroughs who was a Puritan, says in the book Gospel Fear, he says, Surely it must be to the honor of the great God that when he speaks, all the people should tremble. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord is gracious. And therefore it comes to us all to tremble before him. It becomes us to tremble before him. Let us lay open our hearts the meditation of how much there is in the word, and consider the majesty of God that is there. One of the canaries in the coal mine for you as far as your spiritual life, there's two I think we could draw from this passage. One is if you're not really concerned about the glory of God at all, something is wrong. Something is wrong in your heart that needs to be engaged and dealt with. And the beauty of that is God's grace is that he's bringing it to your attention, not to shame you, not to make you feel less than, but, but to say this is, this is inconsistent. And the other thing is if we never tremble at God's word, if we never read a passage and it causes us to step back and go, I really wish I hadn't read that. As Steve Brown would say, I'm not sure you're reading the Bible. As Mark Twain would say, it's not the parts that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. And if it doesn't cause us to stop and pause and step back and say, Lord, I don't know how this fits, but I'll tell you what I am going to do. I'm going to wait. I'm going to listen. I'm going to study. I'm going to meditate. And I'm not going to make a big issue out of this until I've heard from you. And in waiting, 
I am most concerned for your glory. I am most concerned that you would be found to be all that you say that you are. Exodus 34, 5 and 6. Long-suffering, steadfast in love, forgiving to the thousands upon thousands, telling sin it can only go so far. Lord, that is what I want. I want that more than anything for you. Because when that is true, my life is different. Everything begins to change. Suddenly, we can begin to flourish. And so Habakkuk is teaching us really three things, that we should be concerned for the knowledge of the glory of God, that we must take time to remember God's faithfulness. And we need to do that within the context of our own familial history. And then that we are to be humbled and caused to tremble at his response, that we should care about what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. As we close out, Um, The last quote that I'll give you comes from the prophet Isaiah. And I want you to hear these words and listen to what it is that God wants of his people. And and I want you to consider, is, is that you? Would this describe you? And and what you can't do is cop out. You can't cop out and say, well, you know, I just I'm just old, old goofy sinner, man. I just, you know, kind of like old Peter before the cross. What do you want to, why would you want to be a pre, pre-crucifix Peter? A fool who would deny the Lord your God. Who would have died if it were not for the grace of God. If it were not for Christ asking him three times over of his denial, do you love me, Peter? And if you love me, then you go feed my sheep with the truth of the glory of God. Listen to what Isaiah from God has to say to us. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, thank you that you clearly state what it is that you want from us, your people. Thank you for Habakkuk's prayer. Thank you for his courage. Thank you for his love for you. Thank you for his example. Thank you that he longs for you to be glorified. Thank you that he is a man who is humble and contrite and who trembles at your word. God, we even saw in Psalm 96 that we are called to tremble before you. And God, that's not just some fake emotion. That is a recognition that we are small and you are great. That we are the created and you are the creator. That we are in need of a savior. That is the trembling that you long for us to have. That you should be glorified above all things. And that anything that is built that is inconsistent with your glory will be swept away in judgment. God, may we be architects and ambassadors of reconciliation. May we long to know you and your glory. May we long for the day when all things will be made new and your glory will fill the earth and it will be revealed at long last what it is and how beautiful it is and we'll be able to to take it in such that we'll have an eternity to enjoy it. God, make us a people who long for the future but who also 
live in the now and the not yet, seeking to glorify you, seeking for your family to grow larger, seeking to be instruments of righteousness. God, I pray that our time here this morning would not be in vain. I know that your word doesn't return void. I pray that you and the power of your spirit would stir in your people to long for your glory, to remember how you've been uniquely good, and to tremble at your truth. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.